Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Neilhoff. I'm a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California, and I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Rick Langer. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Tim. And as Tim mentioned, I am a co-host with Tim and co-director of the Winston Conviction Project. And I'm also a professor here at Biola in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department and the director of the Office of Faith and Learning. So today is kind of a special episode. We may end up with two episodes of this, but this will be our 50th episode. Woo! Of the Winsome Conviction podcast. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. And I was chatting with David Turner. David, by the way, for all of those, he has been on the podcast before, but he's the guy who's always behind the scenes on our podcast and makes all these things happen. And he just mentioned this to me, and we thought, oh, it'd be really fun to go back and not so much generate the greatest hits or something like that of what happened in the podcast, but things that were saying, man, that was a moment for me to remember. That was something that was really valuable. That gave me an insight. That made me see things differently. So we thought, let's do that. Let's just dedicate an episode to going back through and thinking about what's impacted us from the things we've heard from people. And it was really fun to do that. Like uh, uh, some I had really forgotten. Um, but here's the fun thing for the listeners to know. We've not shared our list with each other. So this may be crazy <laughs> redundant. Or it's just going to be kind of fun. But Rick, let me start off by just saying this. Do you remember episode one? Do you remember the topic? Uh, uh, see, I, so I remember <laughs> I remember that we had an episode one, but then you qualified it with, do you remember the topic? And that's when I lost. The so topic go was, ahead, Tim. Show off. Yes. Let it fly. Yes. The topic was, what do we most appreciate about Tim Mielhoff? Oh, I thought it was a, it was great, a short podcast. It, it was a short <laughs> It was our shortest podcast. It came in at about three minutes. That was kind of hurtful because I was, yeah. I was two of the three minutes. That, that really bothered me. No, episode one, we kind of set the table. It was on the argument culture, which is Deborah Tannen's term. She's a Georgetown linguist. And she said, today, we approach each other as adversaries. And we're not interested in learning. We view compromise uh, is seen as common ground, listening taking the other person's perspective. And so we had this phrase that originated in episode one that I really liked a lot. It was humanizing thoughts lead to humanizing communication. Oh, wow. And, and that's been a theme, I, I hope, of our episodes, is that we need to humanize these issues with people, that these are real people. They may be debates. And sometimes as academics, we can just enter a debate and do it for the sake of debate. But we need to remember that people have feelings, uh, they're living lives often more difficult than what we can even think of. Uh, so that one made me think very quickly of Preston Sprinkle, episode 14, where he talked about the LGBTQ community. And he said, these, these are real people that I know. And uh, mem remember he mentioned, Preston mentioned that one um, trans person yeah. who wouldn't drink anything in the morning because they wanted to go through church service and not have to go to the bathroom to make anybody feel uncomfortable or they themselves feeling uncomfortable. Rick, I, that was like a drop the mic moment. Yeah. And I, I had never even considered that, that a person would go to that length because they didn't want to put other people in a weird spot or put themselves in a weird spot. That, that was interesting. Humanizing thoughts lead to humanizing communication. Yeah, and actually that reminds me as well of the episode we talked about uh, humanizing uh, President Trump 
and uh, Vice President Biden at the Remember time, that. now President Biden, but in uh, each is going back and forth saying some things that help us, uh, you know, kind of humanize people who'd been kind of caricatured or viewed as too despicable to even um, yeah. humanize. So, yeah, so that great, great point, and I had forgotten all of that. So and you know, let, me t- let me tell you a funny thing about the uh, about President Trump is I wrote a something for the Christian Scholars Review where I had written a Lent devotional where I had simply said, listen, how do you think it feels if you're President Trump and Saturday Night Live via Alex Baldwin openly mocks you and makes fun of everything, your intelligence, your looks, um, through, through Alec Baldwin's interpreta- uh, impersonation. Yeah. I just simply said, let's just stop for a second and think what that looks. Rick, I had people write to Biola <laughs> and withdraw from the Lent devotional because I humanized President Trump. Think about that. Welcome yeah. to the Argument Culture, episode one. Yeah. Right. All right. There All right. What, you do you, what do you have? What's on your list? All right. So one of our early podcast guests was David French. Mm. Um, and, of course, David French is a guy who's commented on a lot of things, and there's many of concerns that we kind of share in common with him. And so, anyway, he's a person that I, I appreciate and respect. But there were a couple of things that he said that I thought were really potent and have become in some ways even more relevant as the uh, years or months have gone by for me. And let me just pair two things together. One was he talked about, um, in effect, the dangers of your in-group. And to put a name on it, the name that he gave was affective polarization. And that is that when you cluster a batch of people in a group, the group doesn't just gravitate to the most polarized individual and kind of have that be how polarized the whole group becomes. The group actually moves beyond even the most polarized group. So the entire group ends up being more polarized than any individual was, member was to begin with. And it was like, oh, wow, an incredible danger of this sense of what happens when we just get in an in-group and we kind of hear each other. And then you also, I think the interesting thing with that story was that French pointed out that what happens is you shut down the points of pushback that you yourself feel on certain arguments, you, you never agree with everything about a group, right? But because you have a group of like-minded people, you end up thinking anything I share that isn't like-minded will mm. sacrifice my standing in the group. So all of the group discourse shifts even more polarized. And you know what you think is a good thing, to have a place of belonging actually ends up being a bad thing. And you know what's funny about that, Rick, is I, as we talk about this, Nobody thinks that's true of their group. You, oh, that's, you know I mean? that's right. Yeah, well, I can see the liberals being yeah, there. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Absolutely. But, well, maybe your group? No, 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 no. We're, no, no, We're no, good. no. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, and I love the French um, interviews. Uh, and, you know, it, just as you mentioned that, you know what I thought about is, remember he was um, saying, hey, don't think that we can't have another civil war in this country. Oh, yeah. And you and I kind of laughed it off at the time. And then the insurrection happened yeah. at the Capitol. And we were like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, uh, to me, that was a chilling moment of realizing what David French is being prophetic, saying, guys, let's take this seriously. And I think after, after the storming of the Capitol and people losing their lives, that th- this, that became a chilling reality that we, we need to take seriously and guard against with uh, 
for do you have episode numbers for that uh, you know what? I I can uh, drum them up. We'll add those. We'll have okay. uh, or a- add those down there. But it would have been early in uh, the fall of uh, 2020. Let me let me pair one thing, another thing, sure. French said with it because sure. it was so interesting. So the the desire to have an in group actually turns out to be dangerous. The other thing he talked about was political homelessness. Mm. And I have felt that. I felt the political parties and affiliations I've had for for four decades. I'm suddenly watching and hearing things that I'm suddenly feeling really uncomfortable with, and, and I've felt this sort of sense of political homelessness. Well, here's the interesting thing. He said, in there, this absence of belonging is actually a good thing, because he actually had a, a wonderful phrase. This wasn't from what he said on the podcast, but another thing he had written that I read on the, podca- on the podcast was he says, we are aliens, exiles, and sojourners, all terms that are identified people who, by definition, do not belong in the place that they are. We're ambassadors from a distant land. We'll one day return to our homeland, which is in heaven. In the meantime, we should expect to be hated because the world hated Jesus first. And this world will know persecution. So our only hope ultimately is an open hope Jesus will come and overcome the world. And we might even expect that friendship with this world means enmity with God. So if that's how we expect to fit into the outside world in general, why would we expect to fit any better within our political parties? That's good. And I thought, wow, that's right. So my sense of homelessness, in some sense, is probably a proper sense of detachment from the core values of this world and saying, look, there's things that I love and value as a follower of Christ that don't map well onto the givens of our political terrain. So, yes, feeling politically homeless isn't a thing that you should be upset about, Rick, but probably a thing that you should embrace and say, yeah, that's kind of right. Um, We... Uh, are big fans of something called allsides.com. Really fun uh, announcement. The creators of that are actually going to be on our podcast and kind of get the backstory of how that originated. Um, but here's, here's what I think is a benefit of the homelessness that I feel, Rick, is I go to allsides.com. And what's cool about it is t- take an issue and they will present to you, now of course this is their interpretation of what the left, the center, and the right is. So when, when I'm politically homeless, I now look at that, and, and there's many times, Rick, I read what I thought would be my position, which would be the right, and I go, well, I don't agree with that. I, I really don't agree with that. And then I read the left, and I'm like, you know, I, I change a few things, but I sort of kind of resonate with that. Now, I most resonate with the center. That's the one that I gravitate towards. So I would just encourage all of you go to allsides.com and just read left, right, center. And they're picking not only what they think represent those three camps, but the best writing of those three camps, which I, I think is awesome. So that to me, that there's a little bit of sadness being homeless for sure. But there's a little bit of freedom now that I don't identify with don't. Yeah, don't have an identity right. that yeah, you can, so I can easily identify. I yeah. can kind of critique them a little bit. So I think that's interesting. Okay, so now I'm going to pick my favorite. I just right. mentioned episode number one because I thought that was kind of fun to go oh, all Oh, so that doesn't count on your list. It does that not was, count. Oh, that was okay. me slipping one in. I see. I Got thought, it. I go ahead. I thought that was creative. Okay, for sure, mine was episodes 16 and 17 because we brought on Dr. Julia T. Wood. We have a segment on our podcast called Coming Up to Speed on Issues. We had the Reverend James White coming up to speed on race, and we had Dr. Julia Wood coming up to speed on feminism. And 
your reader uh, listeners know dr wood is a friend of mine we've been friends oh my gosh i don't know 25 years she was my master's thesis director and my dissertation director she's the one who literally taught me how to write rick i, I got to grad school i didn't know how to write and i wrote my first paper came back there was red <laughs> everywhere everywhere and then the ominous words see me <laughs> so i remember walking in her office and she said I, I you have some really good thoughts you can't write and i said yes ma'am <laughs> and she said let's fix that and she did and wow uh, i'm indebted to what her. a great what a great model of teaching yes. in that sense where you're like yeah. you're honest about hey look I just did an assessment. Yep. That didn't cut it. So let me help. And you know, so here's some uh, things I want to talk about from Julia as a person, and then I want to tackle feminism. Okay, great. Real quick. As a person, she had this weird, wonderful way, even though she is one of, I mean, she's in the top 50 communication scholars of all time. She's in that rarefied air. She always made you feel like you were a peer. Huh. Even though you weren't. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, Rick. You were not a peer with Julia Wood. But she would invite you in. And here's what is so cool about Dr. Wood. She would listen. And then she would comment, I need to think about that. Uh, that's, that's a really good point. I need to. Let me think about that more. Now, you could think that's a woman, an educator, just using that line. The next time we'd go grab pizza at one of our favorite pizza places on Franklin Street, UNC Chapel Hill, she would say, I, I was thinking about what you said, huh. and I kind of now think this, but I have another question for you. I was like, Julia, you for the last two weeks, you've been thinking about our conversation. To me, that is amazingly yeah. empowering. Yeah, validating. So, and oh, and I just love it that it wasn't a rhetorical trick. But she actually had spent time giving weight to my words. But here's what I, I most take away from those two episodes. Movements and theories are really complex things. And feminism, she did such a beautiful job introducing us to the three waves of feminism and, and the, the concerns of each wave. And I think for many listeners, and by the way, myself included, when I first got to UNC Chapel Hill, I didn't know anything about feminism. And then to learn the rich history of each of those waves and the sacrifices women made, Alice Paul going on a hunger strike in order to get women the vote, um, I, I just didn't know the weight, the complexity of feminism, e even as I agree and disagree with certain parts of the movement. And I just say this to say, that's got to be true of postmodernism. That's got to be true of critical race theory. That's got to be true of Black Lives Matter. Now, now, we can disagree, but until we give it the weight and know the context and the history and the major players and the concerns that gave rise to the movement, then I don't think we're really wrestling as we should. Yeah, let me pick up on that, because that was one of the things that struck me about that episode as well. And uh, sometimes, particularly as academics, and we've actually talked about this a lot on our podcast, is that you have conflicts where people are using the same word but with different definitions or meanings, and so you end up not really talking to each other. And sometimes you're saying this is just quibbling about a word, but you go, well, no, it, it is just a word, but you're using it differently, and that's creating a real problem of communication. So we're talking about a communication problem. Yeah. We're just saying the point is actually coming from the definition of a word. Now, here's the interesting thing with the feminism one. Realize 
it is partly a definition of feminism. What do you mean? Do you mean first wave feminism? Do you mean second wave? Do you mean third wave? What feminism are you referring to? So there's that definitional element. But what was really interesting with Julia Wood, and when she began talking about this, I was like, oh, really, it isn't just quibbling about the definition of a word, but it's about an ignorance or an absence of knowledge about an entire history. So let me recount 200 years of history that you probably haven't thought about, that I'm not holding you, I'm not blaming you for, for not having thought about or not knowing. I'm saying, here it is, and let me tell you that story. Now, you may have a different way to tell the story. We can have that discussion. But understand, this isn't a thin quibble about a definition of a word. It's about trying to triangulate on a broad historical movement, all that's gone into it. And I thought that was just super insightful to hear you know, fr- from her as she shared that. And then I just have to mention one last relational thing about Julia. Is obviously, come on, if you, if you read any of her books, if you go read her bio, there are things that Rick and I are going to profoundly disagree. And, and there are some things that we, I profoundly disagreed with her in my master's and my PhD all my time at UNC Chapel Hill. But Rick, we had a way of keeping the humor alive. Huh. And I, if you go to our website, winsomeconviction.com, I have an essay on G.K. Chesterton and his relationship with George Bernard Shaw where after a debate, they'd go to the pub and just laugh and all that kind of stuff. So Julia and I, even in the midst of our disagreement, would just laugh. And, and listening to that podcast, you hear the laughter. Yeah. Like my first introduction to her, Rick, was she's lecturing in front of 200 students. And uh, she holds up a pic. Now, I'm, a, I'm her TA. I'm one of eight. She does not really know me. We've had one meeting together with eight TAs. And she holds up a picture in front of 200 students of a male model in a black swimsuit. And this guy is cut, Rick. I mean, his abdominal muscles spell mom. I mean, he, he, it's a, and she holds up and she goes, okay, when you um, look at that, what, what do you see? And nobody's responding. It was the first class. So it, it got awkward. So I raised my hand. I'm in the front row. And she looks at me. She goes, yes. I go, uh, frustration. She goes, frustration. Frustration. I said, yeah, I wanted to wear the white swimsuit. <laughs> and she looked at me just for a moment. We made eye contact. And it was like, are you an idiot? Or is that really funny? And Rick, she burst out laughing in front of the entire class. And to this day, she'll say to me, do you remember that thing? I said, I do. I do. So somehow, G.K. Chesterton, Julia Wood, is it possible to keep the humor alive, even in our disagreements, I suspect some listeners would say, but isn't that disrespecting the issue? Or you're not taking it serious. Right. And I want to say, we got to let off the rhetorical steam somehow. We have to. And we got to find a way of going to the pub and laughing with even our most ardent critics. Okay, that's great. Uh, I guess we probably have one more Time for one more. Yes, um, this. We'll, th- let's do this more. We've we'll, got we'll more. Do, we'll do two because yes. there's. I have way more things here that I'd love to talk about. Um, let me just do a a, a quick one uh, from our conversation with Greg Tenelshoff. Our friend Greg. And uh, I I did while you were uh, chalking here. I did drum up the episode number so you can find it was ended up being a three part conversation, but yeah. it's episodes thirty nine through forty one. But Greg wrote a book on shame. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So I just, I encourage you to, to go back and listen to that one if you hadn't heard it. Because we live in a culture that tends to think of shame 
as being intrinsically evil. Let me put it this way. Pop psychology views shame as being enormously destructive emotion. We shouldn't feel it. It's a terrible thing because it you know, kind of refers to a person's personal self-worth and, and a worthlessness about them. And no one's worthless, so no one should feel shame. Yeah. Um, the weird thing is that if you check in with uh, not pop psychology, but pop culture with social media, social activism, it's like we have become the shaming culture. Mm-hmm. And so we are very active in shaming other people. So, and we think self-righteously about that. That's a way that we exercise movement towards uh, a better tomorrow is by shaming those who haven't got with the program, so to speak. So we have a weird kind of schizophrenia about this. And Greg was thinking about this. We, I asked him, how in the world did you get into writing a book on shame, for heaven's yeah. sakes, you know? And he said, well, I was looking at all these things, you know, some things I just described. And he said, um, here's the phrase, he said, and I got curious. Mm. And he said, you know, I'm a, uh, uh, one of his areas of study is Chinese philosophy, Confucianism. Spent a lot of time working on that. Wrote a book called Confucius for Christians, Erdman. Yeah. Really good book. Yeah. And uh, so he said, uh, you know, I I was curious because I had all of this sort of stuff in in my mind. I've been kind of steeped in a lot of that literature. And he said, Confucian literature, shame and honor, honor, shame stuff is like a huge issue. That's just the way they see the world. And why is it that they view that so positively? We tend to view that so negatively. It got me curious. And I just... I thought, what a perfect response. Instead of, that got me angry, so I tweeted. Greg said, that got me curious, so I read. Mm, mm. I, I, and as I read, I found more, and I finally ended up writing a book. So we talk about curiosity as one of the key things in approaching people you disagree with or differ. And as I went back and, and uh, listened to that episode, I realized, wow, that was what Greg modeled so very, very well, is he didn't react because he really disagreed with some of the people on the other side of this discussion. But it didn't lead him to just get angry, tweet, or to just say, hey, this is a terrible movement. It said, well, let me think about this more. And he generated a really thoughtful and change about that. One of the few guests that we've done three podcasts. Yeah. We, we only intended two, but it was so good. We just asked, uh, Greg, would you go for a third? And he was, of course, he said, yeah, let's, let's absolutely do it. Here's what I love about Greg. And again, I love his books, Confucius for Christians. Remember his great book, I Told Me So? Yeah. On self-deception. Oh, it's phenomenal. <clears throat> so he, they do something, philosophers particularly. Yes, philosophers. Yes. Tell me and about I, philosophers. I, I this say, is great. Noted, I'm all ears. Noted uh, my co-host. <laughs> they define their terms. And I think some people roll their eyes at it because it's like, come on, we all know what love is. Come on, we all know what shame is, right? But we don't. We don't. We talk past each other constantly. So, and again, this is marital communication 101. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the kid's schedule or, or the spirituality of our household. And it's really good to step back and say, okay, I want to have this conversation. Can we just talk real quick about what you mean by spirituality, what I mean, and then we're going to have to come to a level playing field of what those terms mean, at least to us. That's called meta-communication. That's communication about our communication. Let's not assume we know. Let's actually ask, well, okay, when when I say I'm this political party, this is what I mean by that. 
Right. A, a, that is so helpful in the beginning is let's just get our terms on the table and find out even what we're talking about. I thought that he, he's such a great example of doing that. And let me just pick up one of the particular things he said that just is right in vain with what you're saying. He made a really interesting distinction between shame and shaming. Mm-hmm. And if you'll notice when I was describing this originally, I went from the word shame uh, in terms of what you feel, and then I talked about shaming on public media, mm-hmm. uh, social media, and that was exactly a difference that Greg had developed in the book. He says, yeah, shame is basically a thing that you feel when you lose standing. Well, shame is losing standing in your community. Right. And we also use that word to describe the feeling you have when you lose standing in your community. Um, so it's both an internal feeling you have and the objective experience of no longer having the same standing that you once did. And so, okay, yeah. And he says, I think that's a right thing. That forces you, uh, it's a sense of accountability to a community and allows you to fail in your values. And when you don't do that, you go, have you no shame? I mean, mm-hmm. there's kind of that sense. So that's great. Shaming is different because it's you trying to make me feel bad about the thing because the other one is me having this objective experience and then generating the bad feel on my own in response to it this one is bypassing that whole process of me having this and just saying let me feel let me make you feel shamed yeah and that's a really really helpful distinction so anyhow kudos to to greg both for his curiosity, but then also for doing what philosophers tend to do with clarifying our thinking about these things. And you have to go back and listen to the podcast or read his book because his handling of white shame, white guilt for, for what's happening racially in our country, to me, was the price of admission for the podcast and for the book. And he would say very quickly, I don't want to butcher his thoughts because he's such a great thinker. He said, should I feel white guilt? for what's happening, and he said, I don't think so. Because honestly, I I may have benefited from a system, but I didn't create the power dynamics of the system. But should I feel shame? He goes, I think we should, based on the definition that you just said. That that maybe my getting to my social platform and status today was easier for me than other people, and maybe I had a bunch of perks and advantages that take down my status, um, I thought it was a fascinating conversation, and I thought it was well worth thinking about and being curious about. Yep. All right. Well, let's do a wrap for uh, part one of our uh, you know, 50 episodes in review, and then we'll pick up a few others after this. I uh, would like to thank you for listening here to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. You can get it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is you go to get your podcasts. We'd love to have you subscribe and become a regular listener. And we'd also love to encourage you to check out our website, winsomeconviction.com, where you both find our podcasts, but also a lot of articles we've written and other things that come up, uh, resources uh, that we would uh, really think are valuable, and we'd love to have you check those out. So thanks so much for joining us.